It seems fitting that we were watching the snowflakes fall during our singing of Christmas carols, doesn't it? It's a blessed time of the year. Um, seems like the earliest I remember snowing quite a while, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. It's a pleasure to come be, able to be with you all today. As Daniel's mentioned, I've been here quite a few times. Some of you I've known since 2015. Uh, most of you I've gotten to know over the years or I don't know yet. So I look forward to getting to know you uh, after the service this uh, morning as we share the potluck together. This passage of scripture is an interesting one. Um, it's dealing with some hard topics. You may have picked up on the theme of these violent warfare that took place in there. And there's reasons why it's in the scriptures. I'm going to let your pastor deal with that. And I'm going to just ignore that today. And I'm going to talk because, you know, he's so wise and smarter than me. And he's in seminary, so he knows the answers to all of that. Um, but I'm going to focus on the characteristics of the individuals that are named. Before I do, just show me a sign of hands. How many of you know the names, the first names of your parents? Kids, most everybody. Some are shy. How about your grandparents? You know the first name of your grandparents. Keep your hands up. How about your great-grandparents, all of them? Anybody? How about your great-great-grandparents? Anyone know the name of a single great-great-grandparent? Okay. How about a third great-grandparent? Three great-greats. All right, we've got one hand up still. Any further than that? That's just a few generations ago, and that's our relatives, and we don't know their names. Now, I do have a fantastic name. In fact, it's very fantastic. Uh, my great-great-great-grandparents, her birth name was Electra, which was a popular name in the 1800s, and his name was Charles, but he started, when they got married, he started going by Fantastico. So their names were Fantastico and Electra. So I do know their names because it stayed in family lore. I don't remember all the others, though, right? I would love, can you imagine knowing that couple? They must have been a blast. I don't know anything about them except their name, uh, Fantastico and Electra. And uh, he must have been the character, I'm sure. How is it possible that we don't know their names? Because time has passed. Our loved ones, the ones that we own their DNA, it's inside of us. We don't know their names. But we have the names of these 37 men in all of posterity. Why? There's a lot of people that lived in Israel at this time. We don't know their names, but we know David's name. And we do know, how was that again? That first one, Daniel, is it Yoshebasheth? Something like that? We know their names. We heard their names. We, they're hard to pronounce for our tongues, but not in their language. And they're not names you're familiar with, but they're there for all time in the scriptures because they were names worth remembering. Now, I don't know that any of them set out to have their names remembered. In fact, if you look back over the story, some of those men were no accounts. They were nobodies. They flocked to David because they were rejected by everyone else. Yet somehow these no accounts came to be remembered. In fact, they're not just remembered by name, they're rem remembered for a title, and the phrase in English translates mighty men. Where are the mighty ones of our day that will be remembered 2,000 years from now? 3,000 years from now, for all posterity. Why are these names remembered? Who are these guys? Well, to kind of give an example of what's going on here, this is actually the end of a movie, if you will, and the, or the beginning of the movie, if you will. It's the flashback scene where the king has lived this illustrious life, 
And as everything is wrapping up, he's about to be his demise, he's going to pass the kingdom off in good shape to his son and rapidly not be in good shape. And he's kind of re recollecting. And these men and this last, so he starts off with this last psalm. You know, David wrote about half of the psalms. This is his last one. It's the last words of David. It's what it means. It's his last psalm before he dies. He writes and pens this beautiful psalm. If you have a chance, you know, we, we think of the psalms as in the Psalter, the book of psalms, but there's quite a few psalms all throughout the scriptures, and they just are inserted instead of collected together, and some of them have been taken out and put in the Psalter as well. This is a beautiful psalm. Reread that again today. It was beautiful to, when it was read this morning. And then after that, David just sort of remembers these people and writes them down for all time, or probably, I think, uh, Nathan was the one that actually penned this one down, wrote those names down. But these aren't just isolated stories that sort of suddenly pop up in the life of David at this point. And David's like, oh yeah, remember that cat, Joab and Abishai and all these other fellas? Go back and reread First and Second Samuel. These stories, many of them pop up throughout it. This is a recount of things that happened long ago. In fact, some of those events took place when these men were first gathered together. And now David is re reminded, after 40 years or longer, we know it's been at least 40 years, because he's been king that long, he's now remembering the events of long ago and the people who have stood beside him throughout all of it. And that meant a lot to David because there were a lot of people that didn't stand by David. In fact, people that used to be on his side that tried to kill him or reject him or left him. But these folks didn't. They stayed with him, and therefore their names are remembered for all time, even if they are hard to pronounce, some of them. And so I just think about that. Think about that list of all those names at the end. We don't even know all their exploits. We got some of them, and we're going to talk about some of those guys in a moment. But most of these guys, it just lists their names. And as a result, what a beautiful picture we have of people who are faithful. Where are God's mighty ones is the title of the message this morning. And I want to start off by saying, well, what constitutes a mighty one? Obviously, we see David right here listing all these names. And I'm going to look at it from four different perspectives. I'm going to say there are four things to consider when dealing with what constitutes a mighty one of God. The first thing that we look at is calling. These men were called to David and called by David to serve God. And they embraced that calling. We have three specifically that stand out. They're the special class of their own. So David had a bunch of men. At one time, he had about 500 soldiers. Then it was down to 200. He had this, they call them the 30 mighty men because it's around, they round off the number. There's 37, obviously, that are mentioned, but 30 of them are kind of in a class of themselves. Three of them are in a class of themselves, and three others are in a class of themselves. And that's kind of roughly up to 37. I know it's 36 for those who know math, but. <laughs> In the Old Testament, the Hebrew way of thinking, they handled numbers very differently. Numbers, dates, orders, very differently than we did. It was stylistic. And words, the numbers themselves meant things other than just numbers. There were rounded off numbers for purposes of wholeness and, and description and memorization. So whenever you look at the numbers and dates in the Old Testament, they're not exactly precise from our Western mindset. That's part of the reason how they handle numbers is a little bit differently, different than how we would handle them. But three of these men were called out as special men. These are the mighty of the mighty because they did extraordinary deeds. And they're not even names you're familiar with except for right here, David says, these are my best three. Man, if I had to go to any war whatsoever, these are the three that stand out. Of course, we have the first one there, Yoshebashebeth, the chief of the three, fought 800 people. A man full of courage. 
Eleazar, it says he was present with David. In fact, if you go back and look at the entire history of David, one man's name appears in almost every episode that anyone else's name is mentioned, and it's Eleazar. We think of David as this isolated individual that fought Goliath by himself. And then there's a hint in this passage. No, there were three men that were beside him when he fought Goliath. He wasn't alone in that moment. And we don't know that fact until the end of his life. And he remembers this event and goes, oh yeah, these are the three that were with me when I fought the, the Philistine. So David wasn't by himself out there. Somebody was in, not fighting the fight with him, but there was moral support and perhaps going to back him up in case something happened. Man, that changes that narrative a little bit, doesn't it? That I had these, when no one else would fight the giant, these guys stood with me while I did it. They didn't do it, but they were there when I did it. Man, that's impressive. And Eleazar was present with David through his entire time before he was king and after he's a king as a warrior. It says he stood his ground when everyone fled and he fought so hard that literally it says in the Hebrew, his hand froze to the sword. And that's confusing. What does that actually mean? Either it means it must have been fighting so long that a grip was basically frozen. Could have been a cramp or something that held it tight. Or more likely, so much blood flowed over it that the blood infused over his skin and the sword and that it was hard to break the grip because of the, the dried blood. That's a battle, folks. This man was not afraid to fight the enemies of his king and therefore the enemies of God. Shammah says, stood alone in a field to fight against the enemies. And these are all episodes that find their place in 1 Samuel. When everyone else was fleeing, he stopped and it says in a field of lentils, maybe that was their provisions. And he knew if we lost that, we're not going to eat. Maybe he knew this was an ideal spot to fight. Or maybe he knew this was the time to no longer run. But he turned around and faced the whole army himself. He won the battle and he changed the heart of his men who also joined in and won the battle. These men, therefore, were called out by name in a special way, even amongst the other mighty men. You see, I think God called them to serve in the capacity that they were serving in. And they answered that call, and they answered it with bravery and courage. Now, there may have been other people who were called that didn't survive the battle when they stood alone in the field, or didn't survive the battle when they fought the 800. But these men survived, and they were remembered. I want to ask us, how many of us are called to something? I think we all are. Now, let's differentiate a little bit what calling is. There's vocation and occupation. You hear of someone being a vocational minister. That means they're called into ministry. And sometimes we refer to those who are the professional clergy, and they get paid to do what they do, if you will. Think of it that way. But I'm not talking about that. Your occupation is what takes care of your financial needs while you're here on earth. Your vocation is what God has assigned you to do in your 70 years here on earth, or 80, or 90, or 100 years. It's what God has called, has created you to do. Have you figured that out yet? If you haven't, I would strongly encourage you to work on that. Now, for most of us, if you're like me, it's a process of figuring it out. I didn't have a Damascus Road experience where God came and spoke to me and knocked me off a donkey. That didn't happen to me. I've had moments in my life where I do feel like God was speaking very clearly, and some of them are very distinct individualistic things. Some of them more on the trajectory of my life. But I believe that God called me to do certain things, and I have to be obedient, if I'm a disciple of His, to follow that calling. And I also strongly believe that we are all called until the day He calls us home. 
I remember my grandmother would be uh, my greatest prayer warrior. She passed away at 96 years old. And when she was in her late 80s, I was serving on the mission field. I came back and I went to visit her. And she was one of my, she was my second mom, really. She really was. She raised my brother and my sisters and I. And we lived together. I mean, she literally was my second mom. She made most of my meals in my childhood. So I went to visit her, and she says, I'm not sure why I'm still here. I'm not really that useful. I can't even go to church anymore. Her health had taken a real bad tour, a turn. And I said, well, what, what do you do, grandmother? And she said, I just stay here and pray for you guys all day because I can't do anything else. She, I said, well, how many times do you pray for me? She said, well, I'd say for you probably three times a day. Some people just once or twice, but I was her favorite. <laughs> I'm not even making that up. I really was her favorite. She told me that. She told me that in front of everybody, you know. That was kind of embarrassing. That's a family problem we all dealt with. That's another issue. I said, you pray for me every day? He said, I sure do. At least once, usually two or three times. Let me ask you, who do you know without a doubt prays for you every single day? Man, that touched my heart. Every day, someone prayed for me. And my brother and my sisters, and my parents, and my cousins, and her pastor, and anyone she could think of. I don't have the luxury in my life to sit and sit and pray all day long. I've got too many things on my mind. I should be praying more than I do. But she had got to a stage in her life she could just focus on prayer and enjoyed it. So that became a huge part of her life. What a calling that was. And when she passed, my greatest prayer warrior passed. I felt the difference. She had her calling until she was called to come home. Sometimes our calling is to work with kids or to work as evangelists in the world that we live in. Our callings, most of us are not going to be called out of the secular workforce. We're going to be called into it because that's where the witness has to be. So when I speak about calling, don't think it's an exit from having to deal with non-Christians. The calling is the opposite flow of directions, right? We're called to be in the world, not of it. And so as a result of that, what is your calling? How are you developing and nurturing that calling? Have you, been able to, have you heard what your calling is and understood what your calling is? Do you need help clarifying your calling? Your pastors will help you with it. I'll help you with it for those that know me. And if you don't know me, I'm still happy to help you with it. And here's the thing. For all of us, we have to mature our calling. We're never arrived. Never. Not on this side of, of glory. There's things I need to work on still that I'm not strong enough in. And so that clarity keeps happening. And calling changes over time. There's things that you're called to do maybe younger that later in life you're doing something different as your life situation changes. And as I mature, I start to understand that more clearly. Maybe I can do the latter part of my calling better than I did the earlier part of my calling. These three men were clearly called out in a special way, as all the men were. But that's not all that was to their story. You see, there's another component that we see there, and that is character. They were called out in part, and this is true of all of them, because they were men of character. When you look through this list and then you go back and you look at all that they do in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you see these are men of valor and honor and they lack selfishness. They were men that were godly. I love the episode that's brought up in this particular passage where uh, David's just kind of pining. He's kind of whining, actually. Oh, things haven't worked out. I'm stuck in this cave in Adullam. And the whole episode finds its place in 1 Samuel. Oh, uh, I really wish that I could be at home. But here I am stuck in this cave with these bums and doesn't say it quite that way. But that's kind of what he's really moaning. And he's like, I, I miss Jerusalem. I miss the place where I was at the seat with the king. If only, if only I could get a drink of water from my favorite well. 
he's kind of just throwing that out there. You know, do you ever done that? Oh, if I could only ever go back to that place in time when things worked out so much better, where there wasn't the conflict that arose, where my financial situation wasn't always worrisome, where my kids weren't screaming at me, you know, whatever, that didn't happen to you guys, right? Where our finances were better and our household wasn't falling and everything was just perfect. If only I could go back to that time. We all know that's a myth, right? There was no perfect time because whatever problems you think you're ignoring by going back to those, you're forgetting about the ones that existed at that time. But there are times in our lives, all of us, that seem to be more precious, that things seem to work out better, and we kind of long for them. That's part of the secret of the human heart, right? We all do that. And Paul, and uh, in that moment, David's doing that. These three guys in this passage say, well, maybe we can do something about that. He wants a drink of water from that well. Let's go get him a drink of water. And it says they broke the enemy's lines to go get that. Drink of water. That's not showing anything on their part. They're not going to gain. They could have died. They brought it back to David and said, you wanted the water? Here it is, David. That is an act of loyalty to their king, an act of selflessness for their own concern, bravery, courage. These were not ordinary people. They were people that had a constitution within them of goodness and greatness. And David recognized it. And this is early on. This is before they become the mighty men. This is the process of him realizing these guys are different. I'm in, fi- I'm in a fight with some guys that can make a difference. And he takes the cup and he won't even drink and he pours it out. And if you're familiar, for those hard to read passages in Leviticus and Numbers that do happen when you try to read through the Bible, there's beauty in those, by the way. And one of those, it discusses a drink offering or a pour offering. It can be translated both ways. And that's an offering of something of value. Usually wine could also be blood, could also be water, but something of value that you would pour out to God because you said, I'm not worthy of consuming it or using it for my own good. And that's what a drink offering is, or a poor offering. It's referred to as both. And that's what David says. I'm not worthy of these guys' sacrifice. You would think, that's a waste. Drink the water. They went and did all this for you. He's saying, this is my sacrifice as you made a sacrifice for me. What a beautiful picture. And he's, at the same time, when you look in the Old Testament, you look at the drink offerings, one of the jobs of a drink offering is during the process of making things holy. When you look at whenever the priests are made holy, there's this weird ceremony. When you read, if you want something to look forward in Leviticus, go read when God consecrates the priest. It's the most bizarre ceremony. There's a point in there where they got branches and they're dipping it in blood that they had filled with troughs of blood of animals they had sacrificed, and they're making the, the priests come and they're flinging the blood on them with the branches. It's a strange scenario, but it's showing the cost of holiness. It's showing the cost of sacrifice. And they get to wear that blood. They're not allowed to wash those uniforms, those outfits anymore, the robes that they're going to be sacrificing in. Because it's going to have blood on them anyway, because that's the whole nature of sacrifice, isn't it? So they take these pristine, gorgeous robes that they it can't have any flaws with it. They can't even have hymns in the garments. And they go up there, and they get, the first thing they get done to those beautiful garments is blood splattered on them. It's a picture of sin, and it's a picture of what God's going to do to overcome that sin, right? And in the process, one of the last steps in the process of those priests becoming consecrated is a drink offering is poured out in front of them, saying, these are God's selected holy ones that's going to lead my people. And David is playing the picture right there. It's not just he says, I don't want this because you guys worked hard for it. He's saying, you guys are something special. You're my set-apart ones. 
He's called them out. He's recognized their skills, their character. Are we people of valor? Loyalty to the Lord? Are we selfless, willing to do whatever God calls us? I said just a moment ago, I asked, what is your calling? And I've met people that didn't know what their calling was, but they said, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. Have you ever known what God's asked of you, and yet you're like, I don't think I can do that? That's an issue of character. And say, God, change my character to be more like you. One of the beauties in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that when we die to ourselves, we become a new creature in Christ. Jesus even told us to do that. He says to die to ourselves and take up his cross daily and follow him. We become something new. Whatever character we have, flaws we have in the past, Christ can overcome by making us a new creature. And we can be the people God's called us to be and I think needs for us to be. Then it goes on in this long story before you get to the list of names, and it gives us the third category, which is what I call competency. You see all the C's forming. There's calling and character, now competency. You see, these men had honed their skills. They could throw a javelin, throw a spear. They could cut with a sword. They could run fast. They were strong. One guy fought, I love the passage where it translated this. The ESV says he was a handsome Egyptian that was killed. And other translation says he was a very big man. And the word to be translated both. It's technically handsome. I'm not sure what value that brings in a battle to be handsome. Maybe just catch the attention of the other guys. Ooh, he's nice looking. By the time that they realize that's not important, you're, you've already stabbed him. I, I don't know why it's important to be handsome. I might have a harder time fighting Brad Pitt than somebody else. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that works. But these guys had honed their skills. They didn't wake up one morning able to fight the Philistines or the Amalekites or the other tribes. They didn't wake up one morning knowing how to administer all the things they're going to These guys become the leaders of Israel. But in just a moment, we're going to go back and read the very beginning of their stories. These were debtors. These were people who had a bad reputation. These were people that were outcasts. They had to run away they were rejected by their families. These were nobodies. In fact, the word we would use our modern terminology would be losers. These guys had nothing going for them. They're the guys that no one wanted around them. And yet we see them fighting these battles. We see them serving as governors for David. We see them becoming ambassadors for David. What happened? What changed? They recognized if they were going to be called by God, called by God's man to do this task... They had to have a certain character and a certain set of skills that's going to help them do what God's called them to do. And I would say that applies to you and me. It's not enough to say God's going to call me to be a missionary to France. I had to learn French. To be called to be a missionary to France, I had to learn how to evangelize in a secular culture. I had to learn how to even live life and negotiate daily life in a different country. Those are skills I had to develop. To be a pastor, first sermon ever preached was horrible. You may think this one is too, but I think I've improved on that. <laughs> I had to learn. I'm not very administrative myself. I'm terrible at it, or I used to be, but I worked on it to make myself better at it. I had to develop the skills God had to use in me in the calling he's given to me. And if God's called you to do something, I would say this. Don't wait until you're ready to do it. Start getting ready to do it. If God's called you to do something in the world of missions and you don't know what that is, 
Get a passport if you don't have a passport. If God's called you to reach people that are, don't look like you, that speak a different language than you do, which we are surrounded by in our area, ESL ministries, international ministries, start working on some greetings in Arabic or Spanish. Start figuring out how you can have a relationship with those institutions that help the homeless or the widowed or those who are cast out of their homes or the impoverished or children without homes. Start building relationships with the schools nearby and finding out what are their needs so we can help address your needs. You see, it's not enough just to say, well, God's called me to do something. We have to develop the skills. And sometimes in my life, usually, I have to develop the skills God's called me to do before I know what the calling is. Usually, when God's called me to do something, I've been working on those skills without knowing exactly why I worked on those skills to start with. Because God hasn't revealed my whole story to me from the beginning. Some of it, if he had, I probably would have said, oh, I don't want to do that, Lord. Some of it been excited and jumped ahead of it, the things I had to learn between. So be working on the skills that God's, God's showed you what you're supposed to do in some levels. You're good at some things and not good at others. I say work on the things you're good at, you know, until God gives you a clear sign of what you're supposed to do. It's those skills that you're supposed to develop and then grow and then be mature. Become the person who's sort of the expert in your field. Now, I'm not saying you're going to all be the experts in your field, but why not? Why not? Some of you can put pen to paper or music to lyrics. Some of you, all of you can show compassion to needy and kindness to those who are hurting, Right? All of us can figure out some way that we can be useful for the kingdom so we can be God's mighty ones. We are living in a time when desperately that is needed. The gospel is not listened to anymore. And honestly, most people aren't listening to the ones who have the gospel message anymore. They find other things that are more interesting to them. But where we make a difference in our community, we have a voice. I want to go back into the beginning of the story, though. And I want to touch on the last thing. I'm going to spring it on you in just a second. I want to read the passage first. Let's go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is when David meets a lot of these guys. So you get this story. They're mighty men. Let's go find out who they were in the beginning. 1 Samuel 22 verses 1 through 5 says this. David is on the run. All right. So Jonathan, his best friend's dad, Saul, is the king. And David was in the service of King Saul and did a really good job for Saul and David started becoming popular, and Saul became jealous and decided to kill David. He tried to kill him on several occasions. Eventually, David gets the message and flees. And he hides in this cave where he's very depressed. He's very discouraged. Things haven't gone like he wants. He defeated the Philistine giant. He becomes important in the king. And now he's run away. He's hiding in the cave. And this is where we pick up the story. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling. Oh, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong chapter. It's the next one, David, 22. So he met, he met Ahimelech. You got that story, right? David then departed from there and came to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. 
And David went from there to Mizpah, Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. The story goes on and tells what happens at Nob and Hereth and all this area. Then at the very end of that chapter in verse 23, David speaking to one of the men, and he says, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. And he's speaking to Doeg, one of the men that's mentioned later on by name in the list that we saw earlier today. This is the first account of these men. Do you see what they were called? Men who were distressed, right? Men who were in debt. I mean, this, is not, this isn't the crowd you're going to draw together to say, hey, this is who I want my church to be, right? These are the ones that nobody else wants anything to do with. Those were who were in distress, who were in debt, and who were bitter in soul. Have you ever been bitter in soul? There have been times in my life, I hate to admit it, but I have to admit it, that I have been. That things did not go like I wanted, and I just wanted to curse God. I wanted to curse people around me. I want to curse my situation. Things aren't right. How did that work out for them? And it didn't work out for me. And I'm running away and I'm hiding in a cave. And lo and behold, there's another guy there hiding in a cave. Now we're all a bunch of bums in the cave together. And David's going to command all these bums. Bitter in soul. Men of debt. They had debt mounting on them. Have you ever been in debt and it just swamps you? And they're distressed. Distressed. That word disturbed is another translation. Pressed down. Life had ruined them. They had crushed them. They have nowhere else to go. They're stuck in a cave hiding from those who were against them. And that's the lot who later are called the mighty ones. Now, not all of them. In this episode, there were 400 people. We only have 37 named later. They didn't all stick with David. Some of them died in battle. Some of them just left him. Some of them take on other roles in other places. But out of that group of distressed indebted, broken down, bitter in soul people, God raised up mighty men. I don't know what your status in life is right now, but if God can do that with them, he can do that with us. And by the way, do you know how old David was at this point? You may be thinking of little teenage boy David that fought Goliath. It's not that old anymore. He's probably closer to 40 by this point. He becomes king at about 39 or 40 years old. And we're not far off of him becoming king at this point. He's about five or six years away from that. So he's in his 30s. He's lived a couple of decades since he fought the, the Goliath, the giant. And these men are probably about his age or a little bit younger. They've lived some life. And it didn't work out like they thought. And there are, there are moments in our lives where it's tempted to say, things have not gone like I wanted them to go and I just want to quit. And, and that's their story except they rallied around the one that wouldn't let them quit. And then David says, come stay with me. And that was a word specifically to Doeg. And we know Doeg is one of the names at the end of that list, who at the end of David's life is still with David. About 40 years later, David died around 80 years old. And these men stayed with him. Those who survived stayed with him until the very end. They had nowhere else to go. You see, these, the fourth C there is commitment. They were committed to do what they were called, what they were competent, and what their character permitted them to do. 
This life, and the older you get, and I'm speaking to myself some more than most of you guys. Some of y'all are my age or older. You know what I'm saying is true. Most of you have already figured this out. Life has its ebbs and flows. Things work out like you expect it to, and things certainly don't work out like you expect it to. But what are you going to do next? Becoming a mighty one of God, saying I'm going to stick with it through thick and thin. That my momentary setbacks aren't going to be enough to deter what God's called me to do. Now, I've been tempted to do that. Have you? There have been moments I want to throw in the towel, at least, at least in that moment for that thing. It's too much. It's too hard. I'm too down. I've lost all my resources. I've lost all my friends. And then we have this example of these men that all of that had happened to. And they're hiding in a cave. They're not at the Hilton. They're hiding in a cave. They don't even have bathroom facilities. They have no food coming in. They have no beds to sleep on. That's where they've landed in their life. The best analogy that you and I have to describe these men's situation are found under the bridges in Seattle right now. That's who these folks are. They're the outcasts of society. And God molds out of them mighty men that are remembered for all time by name, even when we don't remember our great-grandparents. May we be people that can see God work in our lives in this way. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray before we do that. But I want to remind us as we take the Lord's Supper that us becoming the mighty ones of God is not even our own function, is it? It's the work of Christ in us. You see, when Paul says we become a new creature, it's not because I will myself to be really, really good, that I make changes because I work really hard. It's because of the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins because I was a sinner and yet while I was a sinner, he loved me to die on the cross for me. And then he just didn't die. He rose again and gave me the power to do the same. Figuratively here on this earth, but realistically for all time, bodily. So as you start thinking through, hey, what has God called me to do today? What skills do I need to develop? What character do I need to work on so I can accomplish that calling? And how will I be committed to do that? Recognize you can't do it on your own anyway. It's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life as well. And so, as we take the Lord's Supper, maybe that can be our reflection this morning. Join me in prayer, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these examples of these mighty ones. And I thank you, Lord, that you pulled people out of distress, out of difficulty, out of problemed circumstances. Lord, I don't think I would have related to them very well if they had all been princes and uh, soldiers. I can identify those who are in debt. I can identify with those who are bitter in soul. I've been those things in my life. I've been distressed and pushed down. And so, Lord, to be reminded that you even use folks like that and not just make them survive, you make them the people to be remembered for all time as an example of your work and your faithfulness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you speak to our hearts, even as we take in this reminder of what you've already done for us. May you speak to our hearts and remind us of our calling, of what character we should have in all moments, even when we're not seen by other people of what competencies you're calling us to work on right now for the next stage of our life and remind us to be committed so we can see the end story. It's in your name we pray. Amen.